still here. One day, Goenkaji used to say, the first day is over, but not quite yet. <laughs> so I want to talk uh, tonight a little bit trying to uh, give a bigger context for the purpose of cultivating this steady, non-judgmental awareness that we're talking about, that this whole retreat is set up to help develop, to help recognize and trust and cultivate. It's not just for the heck of it, you know, there's a really, and it's not just to be uh, a better mindful person in that way, but it really serves the deepest purpose, uh, in my understanding, of the Buddha's teachings. The thing that really, I think, drew me to um, Buddhist practice in the first place and, and really the, the way the Buddha taught when I started to be able to read and hear <clears throat> and understand it a little is that it's never been about uh, adopting a new philosophy. I mean, there's endless amount of information and philosophical discourse and ways of understanding and describing the mind and the heart and the world in the Buddhist teaching, don't get me wrong. And one could take the Buddhist teaching and spend your life in philosophical debate and discourse about it. And many do. That's not my bent. But what the heart of the Buddha's teaching is really so pragmatic, so practical from what we can tell. He started teaching and everything, everything he offered was from the point of view of helping us see for ourselves how suffering is created on a moment-to-moment basis in our own mind and heart how the seeds of suffering can grow and how they are, can create suffering in our mind and heart in a moment when the conditions are ripe. And also how the seeds of peace and release from suffering also arise in our own mind and heart when the conditions are supportive of that. And so, as I think someone said last, last night, maybe it was Franz, saying, oh, these teachings aren't about, if you believe this, then this will happen for you. Because belief just doesn't cut it. But it's all about ahipasiko. You too come and see for yourself. Come and look. So everything we say, the Buddha taught, the whole retreat, we're really trying to set it up and to try and just support everybody to get interested enough or to stay interested enough to keep bringing this interested, mindful attention to our life, to our mind and body process, not just for the heck of it, but because when we really recognize accurately what's going on, that's the condition in a moment that gives rise to release from the confusion, the suffering, the angst that gets created in our response, our reaction to experience when we don't understand it accurately. To me, that's the most amazing thing about the way the Buddha spoke about what frees our heart and mind. You know, I think it's if we would discover some different world or a different state or create different conditions externally, mostly, for most of us, I imagine that's what we look at when, we're, when things aren't right, when we're suffering, we try to fix everything externally which nothing wrong with that when we can do it, but a heck of a lot of the time we can't do it. But it's really looking and seeing what's going on inside. And, and what the Buddhist was saying is that the suffering comes not because the external conditions are as they are. Yes, a lot of the time, external conditions and internal conditions are really difficult, really messed up. We're not saying everything's hunky-dory. That's true. But when we don't recognize deeply our experience accurately, then he's saying the response that arises in the way we think, in the way we feel, in the way we act, in relationship to experience, that response is 
what creates and continues to keep us spinning in suffering and confusion. And so what's so cool is that the the freedom, the, the wise understanding, the right view the Buddha speaks about, the first step of the Eightfold Noble Path is wise understanding, right view. It's right, recognizing accurately. And when we recognize accurately what's going on, then the response of heart and mind is in alignment with things as they are. I mean, it sounds simple and not that, you know, really exciting, but it changes everything, everything. It's really so amazing. From Mingyur Rinpoche, if we want to be happy, we must figure out which causes and conditions lead to our well-being, which makes sense. Similarly, if we do not have a clear understanding of the conditions that create suffering, how could we possibly expect to free ourselves from it? This meditation, the whole Buddhist path, is about recognizing accurately the conditions, how does he say, the conditions that create suffering in our heart and mind. And once it's accurately recognized, it's actually a natural effect of the accurate recognition that we respond appropriately in a way that doesn't create more suffering for ourselves. Just on a moment-to-moment basis, it's not a one-time-all and it's over. You probably know that by now, right? It's never going to be a one-time and it's over. This is our life, this whole life. But what's amazing is the power of accurate recognition is what frees us and the steady, non-judging mindfulness of the simple experiences, just the simple things we've been talking about today, that is the powerful tool, the steadiness of that, that sets up the condition for wisdom, for accurate recognition to arise. One of the definitions, I think it's from Sayadu Tejaniya, of a pasana meditation, Vipassana meditation is experiencing the mind and body directly from moment to moment with the right understanding. Or sometimes he calls that the three jobs of a yogi. So the moment to moment mindfulness, you're probably getting it that that's what we're really leaning on. Experiencing the mind and body directly, just as it is, I'll talk some about that, with the right understanding. And often, this right understanding, wise view, it can be information that's handed to you that we need to hear in order to inspire us to look more carefully. But what I personally really appreciate about the um, translation of Samaditi in the Pali to wise view or right view is that in my mind, which is pretty literal, I translate that literally, that the view of experience is accurate. That the shift of perception, the shift of recognition, oh, that's how it's like. All the reactions of, of dislike or self-interest or greed or confusion fall away because they no longer apply. So I'll give you a very simple example I mean, to me, it, it works. Maybe it's too simple. But anyway, I have a, a nephew, a three-year-old nephew, and he's the first in my family, the first and probably the last, given the age of my brother, um, little one. So it's been fun watching how he learns. And so this is just an example of, you know, how little kids, how they have these... Um, just a thing where you put blocks in with different shapes, you know, a triangle, a circle, a square, and you have, to, you have to put the triangle block in the triangle hole, right? It's not rocket science for us, but for a little kid, you know, it's just put it in the hole, you see an adult do it, but then you can't do it because you don't have the sense that the triangle doesn't fit in the circle, right? So the kid's trying to put it in the wrong one, and you can watch the frustration build and the confusion. And if it was an adult who was thinking more 
clear thoughts. We think, what's wrong with me? This is messed up. They made it wrong, or I'm stupid, or how come, you know, my mother can do it? And all of that, right? Because it was so easy for them, and I can't do it. So given your propensity, you either blame inside, or you blame outside, or you throw the whole thing out the window, you know, whatever. I have a good friend. She keeps... She <laughs> She's a nun, but anyway, she'll be, be working on her computer. She's I just want to throw this whole thing out the window. So, <laughs> this is in the monastery over there in Burma. can really relate. So it's not just little kids. But then, so suddenly though, watching a little kid, and you can say it's developmental, suddenly it clicks in and he gets it. Oh, maybe he doesn't know the word, but he can see triangle, triangle. It matches, it goes in, the whole thing starts to work. And all that reactivity it's just gone, right? Because it doesn't make any sense anymore. Because it's seeing things more accurately. This is the nature of things. And when there's the accurate recognition, all the hoopfla goes away. That's simple, but that's really what I'm talking about. The nature of insight is this shift of perception from not recognizing accurately and getting reactive and, re- and to just, oh, it's like this now. That's how it is. This is what our mindfulness is helping us practice. So we stop fighting. It's not personal. It's like we stop fighting the law of gravity. Probably we all stopped fighting that a long time ago. We stop fighting the fact that bodies get older. No, really, people don't stop fighting that. But you'd think (laughs) that we would because it happens. It's the law of nature. And that whole extra suffering is just a a sense of denying or not recognizing things as they are or wishing they were different. Have you spent any time at all today wishing things were different? Did you have any moments of experience arising that somehow you're thinking, this isn't right. It's not supposed to be like this right now. I'm doing it wrong. It's too hot. The instructions are stupid. I shouldn't have come. I'm too asleep. Whatever, you know, something's wrong because it's supposed to be different. That's exactly the place of being in contention with reality. And what this steady moment-to-moment mindfulness is hopefully giving us the, the practice to see is, what, oh, it's like this now. So as Ajahn Sumedho says that all the time. No, 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 I'm sleepy. Oh, it's like this now. And attention, total sense of presence just drops into feeling how it is. Good, bad, indifferent. It's not that everything becomes lovely. You're still sleepy and your body's heavy and you're sweating and, oh, it's like this now. But the contention is gone. As, uh, you know, the teacher Byron Katie says, you know, when you fight with reality, you lose. So we're here to embrace this quality of moment-to-moment awareness to see what reality actually is. And we can't think our way into it. We have to keep practicing. That's what this is about. So let me give you another kind of example. In my mind, it's the same kind of an example of a shift of of how a way that we think about something or the way we use language can actually affect how we experience we don't recognize accurately. Uh, To me, this works. Anyway, I was reading an article, a book, about um, nonviolence as a powerful tool, internal and external, for social change and how it really needs to come from, you know, we're talking about Gandhi and Martin Luther King and the real power of nonviolence as a, a strategy, but a way of life. But also saying that, you know, it's often perceived as, from the outside, as either um, weak, passive, you know, just because that's the best you can do, nonviolence kind of thing, and we really have to fight, whatever, you know. But the point that intrigued me in this particular article was the use, looking at how language reflects assumptions that they may be, we're aware of them, but often they're, we're unaware of them, but they're kind of um, affecting how we think about things, and that's how we even recognize what's happening. So he's saying the, the very term nonviolence actually makes violence the norm, and non like so. Nonviolence is uh, the exception. So then we think that way. 
You say, what about if the only word for war were non-peace? Doesn't it make just a little shift? Such a little thing. And I mean, I'm not going to get into a whole linguistic thing, but language, which reflects, and it's different from culture to culture too, but language really reflects so much of how we think, but then it also can kind of uh, shape the way we're thinking and looking at ourselves in life. So why is it, how do we get so habituated to not recognizing accurately? Why should it be so difficult? And don't think I can answer that either, but that's just the question leading into the next thing I want to talk about. But this is really part of the exploration of moment-to-moment mindfulness that when we were saying, you know, awareness can be with anything, the movements of mind, the thoughts, sensations in the body, sound, sight. Sure, it takes some steadiness of remembering of practice to notice the more subtle movements of mind. Absolutely, that doesn't come right away. But we can actually notice how the uh, mistaken assumptions and habits of mind and heart and reaction arise. It's not like we have to hear it and say, okay, now I'm going to stop doing that, because we can't. We don't even know it's happening in our minds. But hearing it, we can start to get interested in exploring. So the essential, one essential wrong view, misinterpretation of moment-to-moment experience that is, according to how the Buddha talked, and certainly in my experience, that's at the, at the heart, you could say, that's a central, and, uh, central misunderstanding, misperception, wrong view, and one that is arising very, very frequently in our moment-to-moment experience. It's arising and passing because nothing's steady state. It's not like there's this wrong idea sitting in the back of our mind and it's always there. Nothing's always there. And the mind isn't always there either. Everything's changing every moment. But one that frequently arises, so it's called in, um, in the Pali, Sakaya Ditti, or personality view, identity view. And that really means the habit incredibly deep, of taking any particular moment of experience as being me or mine or who I am. I'm just going to try and keep this, I'm not going to go too abstract about it, but this is really at the core of our suffering and confusion, because this is where all the distortions and reactions to experience arise out of this habit of taking ownership, really. Or as I always say, you know, we take everything personally, and it's not personal. Like, what do you mean? Of course it's personal. I'm sleepy. Who's sleepy? I am. Who's suffering from it? Me. You know, yes, it feels like that. We're not saying it doesn't feel like that. And we're not saying try to think your way out of it, because who's trying to think their way out of it? The more you think about it, the stronger you feel. So I'm not saying abandon that. Just to start to watch what happens when a particular experience is somehow separated out as me or mine or I. So very simply, we could say, going through the day-to-day, noticing when you were aware. I'm sure there's plenty of times you weren't aware. So only the times that awareness was remembered. Noticing whatever's occurring. So there's seeing happening, hearing happening, sounds come and go. There's sensations in the body coming and going, moods, emotions, thoughts coming and going, all of that. Maybe tastes when you're eating, smells. So all of these things are happening over and over and over and over, sometimes very rapidly. You agree with that? You can, okay. So when Steve was talking about the moment-to-moment awareness and that we're practicing with really the very mundane experience a lot of the time, it's exactly so we can start to notice. You need the steadiness, but start to notice this. 
So notice how you might be walking or outside. There's sensations, it's warm, it's cold, there's hearing, there's a perception of bird, there's a thought that goes by, there's a sight that's happening. There's a, not that you're naming each thing, but there's awareness that is going on. But suddenly, a particular experience is somehow privileged as being me or mine. And we don't say neon lights, me or mine. You're just walking along and suddenly Steve kept talking about being in the sun, right? So suddenly you're walking in the sun. There's been warm sensations. There's been here. All of a sudden it's a hot sensation. So I'm planning to go, ah, I'm so hot. That particular physical sensation of warmth before it was just coming and going. It was warmth. It was relatively neutral. There was hearing, there was hearing, but suddenly it's like, ah, I'm so hot. You get a sense of the difference? The feeling of heat or warmth has been kind of privileged. It's been kind of pulled out of the whole flow, which keeps on going, 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 of me or mine. And this sense of heat or unpleasant has somehow come up and it's, it's me. And the whole flow can kind of stop at that point. Or it could be something really pleasant. Oh, the cool breeze, it's so nice. And then the next thing you're thinking about how you're going to make it cool back in your room. And then you're thinking about the nice cool vacation you're going to take after this. And then on and on and on and on. But before that, it's just a sensation arising, a sound arising, a thought arising. But when the sense of me comes in, then it leads to reaction when we want more. We don't want it at all. We think about things. If it's something unpleasant that keeps on occurring, we start thinking this shouldn't be happening. How can I get rid of it? Why don't they fix it? Why is this going on? It can lead to a whole lot of resistance, anger, suffering, blame. And something that we like can lead to a whole story of how to get more. Or what does it mean about me? It's then what we don't notice is how what had just been a very steady flow of awareness, different things happening, has suddenly kind of shrunk and gotten uh, frozen in a way. Lama Dream at a Tibetan Lama, he says, um, he's talking about how really thoughts and all our experience, it's just nature. We're nature, you know. We take everything that occurs personally as if somehow we're in charge of it. We can control it. So if you're really sleepy and there's a sense it shouldn't be happening or it's my fault or if I do X, Y, and Z, sleepiness will go away. Uh, Other than going to bed, probably you can't control that. Do you control what thoughts come? We wish, right? Can you control the sensations that arise in your body? No, it's like everything that occurs is there's conditions that are coming together, some internal, some external. We're really affected by the environment, by other people. But the tendency when something's been privileged, a particular experience has been privileged, as I or mine, is that becomes separate, me, and everything else is other. So Lama Dreamed was saying to recognize when that happens, instead of realizing that thoughts, sensations, it's all just part of nature, at the moment when um, it's a certain experience is held to as me, we kind of solidify. And he says we become locked then in the narrow bandwidth of personal human experience. We become a human experiencing this narrow bandwidth and we lose the sense of the, not even the connection, because that implies me connecting with something else, but we lose the sense of the inclusive nature of experience, of nature, that what we're calling me is just conditions arising as part of nature, as a natural result of whatever the causes are in this moment. It becomes me, and that's other. And how can I change the other so that the me is more comfortable or happy or whatever? It goes in that direction. So when we get locked in this narrow bandwidth, it is what distorts our accurate recognition, and it leads to what the Buddha really spoke of in our heart and mind as the deepest uh, emotional habits of mind and heart that are really kind of the wellspring of confusion and suffering in our mind. 
And those are, I'm just going to mention the habits of greed, wanting what we want, aversion or hatred, really just trying to push away what we don't want. And this can get, go very subtle and get really far really fast. And then the basic delusion, just not recognizing accurately. Like my nephew, you know, before, before he couldn't tell, you know, the triangle and the, and the circle apart, before he got frustrated and all, there wasn't greed or aversion. It just wasn't able to recognize accurately. That's a kind of delusion. Our habit, for all of the habit of this sense of um, solidifying around a particular experience as me or mine is so frequent and common. This is also nature. It's a habit that I'm going to guess we all have. <laughs> I'm just going to guess, hazard a guess. I haven't met a person who doesn't have that habit. But it's so familiar and it seems so right, it happens so much, that mostly we don't even look at it or notice it or question it. We just get involved in the reaction of liking, disliking, and confusion. This is what mindfulness helps us begin to relate, to see through in another way. I'm back to the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu. So the Dalai Lama saying, the paradox is that although that we have a drive for self-focus, and he said the drive for behind self-focus is to seek greater happiness for yourself. And this is just what the Buddha said. The, the compassionate thing that motivated him to teach when he first woke up, because he was, I don't really need to teach. I could just kind of hang out in, in peace, you know, for the rest of my life. But he looked around and he really saw that everybody wants to be happy. That's really at the heart of all of us. But by not recognizing accurately what brings happiness and what brings suffering, we keep doing, in trying to be happy, we keep doing just the things that keep us suffering more. That's what the Dalai Lama is saying here. When you self, the drive behind self-focus is to seek greater happiness for yourself, but it ends up doing exactly the opposite. When you focus too much on yourself, you become disconnected and alienated from others. And in the end, you also become alienated from yourself. When, with too much self-focus, your vision becomes narrow. And with this, even a small problem appears out of proportion and unbearable. Have you had any moments like that today? Retreats are great for that. I mean, really, I mean, even in your mind, you say, this little thing that's going on that I really feel murderous rage about. I can have a thought that, that my reaction doesn't seem quite, you know, in line with the mundanity of this situation. But you can really see, oh my goodness, little things cause so much suffering. But in our daily life, it's the same thing. Now here's Desmond, Desmond Tutu. He's talking his own language, but the same thing, so it's not just the Buddha. He's saying, you know, that in a real sense, we have a very profound complementarity. In other words, we're all part of each other, the whole world. You don't have to be a believer in anything. He said, I learned to be a human being from other human beings, learning to walk, learning to speak from other human beings. We belong in this delicate network. It is actually quite, quite profound. That's what Lama Dreamed was saying. I mean, we lose the sense, the recognition of this delicate network when sh- my sound, my hearing, my reaction. Back to Desmond Tutu. Unfortunately, in our world, we tend not to recognize our connection until times of great disaster. Uh, he's talking externally how some, in times of great disaster, then we come forward and try and help. But I want to say also internally in what we can explore on retreat here and in our life is when it's a time of personal disaster. And on retreat, the personal disaster may just be that you didn't get oatmeal for breakfast or something. It can feel like a personal disaster. So what we can do, what we can explore is 
that's what we're practicing for. We don't have to wait for a, for a huge disaster to knock us out of our habit of viewing everything as mere mine. Because that's what happens with a big disaster personally or worldwide. It shakes us up. It makes us look fresh somehow. Like, oh, we can see in a different way. It kind of knocks us upside the head or the heart. We don't have to wait for that. Here, why we want to practice this simple moment-to-moment mindfulness is that what re- that's the sets up the conditions that reveal things as they are. It doesn't have to only be accessible when everything is falling apart. So it's just this simple, the simplicity of mindfulness, which can include everything. So what I mean by that, just... Okay, you hear the bell? I'll say it again. Just the simplicity of hearing. Just what it is, mindfulness. No big whoop. Then... Did you notice if there was any thoughts that came after that? Which is fine. Mindfulness can notice the thought. Why is she ringing the bell? It's a nice sound. It's not a nice sound. I wish that was the bell for the end of the talk because I'm sleepy and I want to go to bed now. How much longer is it going to be? Is it hot in here? Is it, you know, All of that is just natural. Mindfulness can notice all of that. The simplicity of mindfulness, though, is it's just not adding anything extra. So the simplicity of hearing the sound, hearing. If we think bell, that's a perception. Mindfulness can recognize that. There's nothing that occurs in our mind, in our body, in hearing and seeing and feeling and thinking that needs to be outside of the simple moment of mindful recognizing. It's like this now. Nothing. So that whole train of thought I just said, when we're not aware of it, you know, we hear the bell and the next thing we know we're really kind of disgruntled and feeling restless and tired and want to go and aversive and everything I'm saying, you know, shut up, shut up already, I want to go. And you don't quite know how you got there. And then suddenly you wake up, oh, I'm feeling really, really... um, aversive right now. I shouldn't be feeling aversive. I should be really in mindfulness and really loving and that's what the retreat's about. But as soon as you go, oh, aversion, that's mindfulness. That's the simplicity of mindfulness. It's like this now. There's nothing that's outside of this simple moment of awareness. Ajahn Sumedho often uses the phrase, mindfulness is the point that includes. I love that. It's a point because, meaning it's just this moment. It's not about what happened three seconds ago because there's only this moment. But whatever's occurring in this moment, the simplicity and honesty of mindfulness can just relax into it. It's like this now. You don't even have to have words for it. Just, it's like this now. I do that all the time, on and off retreat, when I'm really trying very dedicatedly to be mindful as we've been giving instructions, and you try to hear the sound, notice the thought, feel the sensation, right? Have you been trying to practice like that today, sometimes, ever? Does it get tiring? Yeah. Does it feel kind of stressful sometimes? Because it's like we're trying too hard because it feels like something I have to do as an act of personal will. No, that's, that's only how we know how to do stuff. So in the beginning, the act of personal will is just simply that remembering what's happening now. That's it, what's happening now. You don't even have to name it. So when I'm starting to feel that, I'm trying to be mindful, name being present, and it's just start to notice the stress and the tightness, and it's feeling so effortful, the point that includes is, oh, it's like this now. You don't, I'm saying words because I'm talking, but I may not feel, oh, effortful feels like this. And the whole thing, you don't have to name it all, this is a sight, this is a sound, just the whole thing. There's a sense of total relaxation, of total presence and wakefulness into this moment, the point that includes. And for me, there's always when that a sense of ease Ease because the, the, 
the sense of fighting with or trying to fix what's happening is released in that moment. So, oh, it's like this now. And if I had to put words, it's like I feel totally stressed and tired and hot and aversive. Feels like this now. And there's, it's so weird, I know, it doesn't make sense just to talk about it, but there's a sense for me of the relief of no longer being in contention with reality. And a wakefulness, oh, it's like this now. And this is the shift from our entrancement with the particular experience, the object. So say, say, say striving, say tension. The sense, our idea of, of it being about me is my tension, I'm doing something wrong, or why is there tension? And the idea of relief would be, I relax into tension, I name it, and it gets better, right? Those of you who've done a lot of mindfulness practice, don't we often get caught up in, if you were being mindful properly, the unpleasant thing would change, right? I've been with it, I've been with it, I've been with it. We go, right, Uh uh-huh, and, yeah, well, and it's still here. Okay, that's right. No one said mindfulness makes everything you don't like go away. It's nothing to do with that. But the peace that comes, oh yeah, stress is like this. This is the shift to taking refuge in that moment of awareness, that moment of mindfulness, rather than getting our confirmation, sense of self, sense of good and bad and liking from, from the particular object. Because the object is changing every moment. And awareness, mindfulness, is not stained or gotten dirty or ragged if it's a difficult experience. It doesn't get more beautiful and pristine if it's a lovely experience. In some ways, awareness doesn't care what it's aware of. It's not like only our, our wanting mind of me, we only want to be with the good stuff. Good means pleasant, basically, or some idea, I'm doing good. Awareness doesn't care. Oh yeah, it's like this now, completely stressed out. And the ease is, the stressed out is here, but the sense of it's all about me in that moment is gone. Just for that moment, because the awareness, trusting the awareness, recognizing, just so simple. And that's why we want to do moment to moment to moment these very mundane experiences. Because we want to just have more and more and more chances to just recognize. It's so simple, it's like nothing. This awareness, you know, like we've talked this morning, we'll keep talking about it, you're just feeling your hands touching, you're just noticing you're seeing, like you're saying, hey, awareness of stress, you're like, huh? I came here so I could say, okay, I know I'm stressed. That's it? That's what you got to offer? You know, I don't think so. And we're looking for something a lot more spectacular often in awareness than just the simple knowing, oh, yeah, hearing and knowing of it, sensation and knowing of it. It's so ordinary. It's available in every single moment of consciousness. It's so available and so kind of neutral, you could say, that mostly our habit is to completely overlook it because we get entranced by whatever it is that's occurring, whatever the object is, especially when it says something about me. But even that sense of me, this is about me, can also simply be noticed by awareness. The point that includes there's nothing outside of it. So noticing the difference, for example, when how complicated and reactive our experience can get when that little privileged uh, perception comes and owns something. So say, say you're walking outside, of course it's not cold now, it's hot, but go out tonight and it's cool. I, my body doesn't like cold very much. So I could be walking outside and there's just a sense of coolness on the body, coldness on the body, and they can just be noticed like that, just like the bell hearing. That's, that's uh, normal. Then the perception can recognize it as cold, hearing. That's just normal. Awareness notices that. Then the habit of mind is what we perceive, what we feel, we think about. So then there's the thought, the cold, and this is where the sense of me can come in so strongly. 
is cold. How can it be so cold when it was so warm? And so I was so warm, so now I don't have the proper clothes. And I know it's not good for me to be cold. And my proper clothes are all the way down at the bottom of the hill, and I have to walk all the way down there to get it. And now I'm going to get a cough, and now I'm going to get sick, and I have to teach the rest of this retreat, and I'm not going to feel I'll be up here coughing my guts out in front of all these people, blah, 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 blah. Okay, I'm... That's just how my mind might work. I'm sure yours are much more spacious and non-reactive than that. And then it goes from the thoughts to what's called a view. It's like the view would be, this is me, I'm cold, it's not good for me, something needs to be done. Like that. Me's really solid. Do you see how complicated it gets? What did it start with? Without the sense of owning it as me, we're out, and, and there's plenty of times it's not. You're walking, and there's coolness, and there's coolness, and nothing. It's amazing if you just recognize coolness and don't create anything around it. Life is so simple. It's so simple, we can't stand it. So there's coolness, and then there's hearing, and then there's a thought, oh, my body doesn't like to be cold, but that thought can come and go and be recognized too. So with the awareness practice, it's not that we're going to be able to stop all this complication. And there's no point in hating it. That's just more complication. But what we can do is get really interested in exploring it, include it in the mindfulness. See how, as the Buddha said, when we suffer, the extra suffering is the heart and mind creates agitation through clinging. Clinging to not to wanting it to be warm, clinging to wanting to have more oatmeal, clinging to whatever. I said, okay, coolness is like this. Hunger feels like this. It's really just to explore the difference between the complexification and the simple moment-to-moment sati, mindfulness. Ajahn Sameh, often we don't talk about this in the beginning of a retreat, but the way that this particular style of practice and that we really learned a lot from Sadhu Tejaniya is remember the Vipassana meditation is experiencing mind and body experience directly, moment to moment, with the right understanding. So this is what makes all the difference. We want to start by talking about the right understanding. Not that we have it all the time, but it's, this is just an idea we can put in. But when you notice you're really all caught up and everything's complicated. And so just stop a minute and go, what's going on now? You can often feel the contraction, the tightness in the mind and body, and you might notice that sense of, it's all about me right now. You don't have to get rid of it. Just bring, oh, it's all about me, feels like this. Ajahn Sumedho, who talks about this a lot, he says, he said, we have a tendency to think that we must wait and practice a long time before beginning to understand this personality view or the idea of personality. It's often that way. People say, you shouldn't talk about it till late, late in a retreat. Because we can't understand by thinking about it. But he asked himself, he said, why should I practice for 20 years from within the delusion I am practicing to achieve something for me? Complete delusion. Why practice from wrong view when we can start by just having it in our mind to bring in the mindfulness and start to see, is this true or not? Don't believe me, but just look and see for ourselves. Get interested, explore. When you're feeling suffering and confusion, just check what's going on in the mind that's paying attention. When there's times that you're not, there's, there's times of ease, not a blissful, amazing experience, but I just mean here, maybe not today, maybe you were too tired today, but there will be moments. You're just walking, you're sitting, you're eating, you're sitting outside looking at a bird, and it's just nothing special going on. But there's some moment-to-moment awareness, and really there's a sense of non-struggle, of ease, of peace, Isn't the being moment-to-moment present with things. Notice that. The next moment, of course, the mind will go, I'm doing so well, I'm at peace, la, 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 la. That's okay. Just notice that. And if that clamps everything down, great. Awareness notices that. Oh, I'm making it so special. 
is like this now. I always think of this awareness that can, the point that includes can be with anything is like a, like a Tai Chi move. It's just, a, oh, it's like this now. You don't have to move away from anything. We just move from involvement and in, in really being seduced and entranced by the object to noticing what's occurring. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, mental activity. So we don't have to wait. We don't have to practice for 20 years and then go, oh, I was doing it all from wanting to try and get something. When actually, it's like this now. Just moment to moment, simple awareness. And all these mundane moments of nothing special are just what we need. Because when it's not a special thing happening, we won't be so entranced by the object and we have a better chance to notice the simple knowing, the simple awareness, and start to trust it. So the attitude that we bring to awareness that makes it possible not to be in contention is back to that nonviolence that we really bring as um, from, from Martin Luther King. Are you saying nonviolence means avoiding not only external physical violence, but also internal violence of the spirit? You not only refuse to shoot a person, you refuse to hate them. It all comes from the attitude in the mind, heart in a moment. So I want to just say that quality of nonviolence is what the attitude that infuses wise mindfulness, wise awareness. The non-violence, we're refusing to hate or cling to whatever experience arises. The attitude we bring is, and this is good, this is bad, I don't like this. Like, oh, what's happening now? Oh, it's like this. This quality of, you could say non-violence, non-contention, really of interest, really seeing This is what's happening. This is life in this moment. Let's just see how it's working. And what allows us to see how these habits grow, the habits of suffering, the habits of freedom, is the steady moment-to-moment awareness, the perseverance, the persistence. When we're just aware for a moment, then we space out for an hour, then we're aware for a moment. Sure, in the beginning, that's out of our control. But what that does is we'll we'll wake up again when something's intense enough. Either we're really identified, we're reacting, we're liking it. Then we don't notice all those moments of simple awareness where there's, there's a sense of ease, of peace, and just the knowing can be known. We don't notice that. Then we wake up again in the middle of some big reaction. And we think, it's always me. I'm always reacting. This is how it is. People come in, no one here, because we haven't talked to you. So I'm, I've just been sleepy the whole day. Go, really? So when you had lunch, you were sleepy? Well, no, no, no. But the whole day, oh, so like at three o'clock, were you sleepy? No. Well, you're sleepy. Well, I was in the nine o'clock, in the 8.15 sitting, there was, a, there was about 10 minutes there where I was really sleepy. And then again, at 4.30, I noticed I was really sleepy. And we do that. And we like make it the whole thing without the steadiness, the moment to moment, the moment to moment Persistence is what is the condition for wisdom to arise, wisdom to recognize accurately things as they are. And this is what's so cool. It's, it's nature. We don't have to create wisdom. We can't. But with the steady moment-to-moment mindfulness, why we keep going through the whole day, that's the condition for wisdom, for clear recognition of things as they are to arise. So... This third aspect of the yogi, perseverance, continuity. As Steve said last night, every moment is a dhamma. Awareness doesn't care whether you're aware of your breath, a really subtle sensation, or what the food tastes like when you're eating it, or you're having a little, you know, hissy fit in the toilet. It doesn't matter. You bring in awareness right then, at any moment. And as we go through the day, really to see not to privilege sitting over walking, over eating. That's sort of why we take away the steady schedule. Not so you can find your own rhythm in the sitting, in the walking. What helps you 
Keep coming back into awareness. What helps you refresh your attention, refresh your mind? And then really to see that if you're walking down to have tea, if you're looking at the horses, if you're sitting in here, if you're doing walking meditation, it's all equal. There's nothing that's more or less important in terms of awareness. So we're not trying to achieve something here in a short period of time. It's just nine days of many, many, many moments, each an equal opportunity to begin to recognize and trust the simple mindfulness, the simple awareness, see how it begins to get its own momentum and that that is the natural condition for wisdom to arise. We don't have to do it. It's not an act of personal will. Sayadu Pandita said, when mindfulness is persistently and repeatedly activated, wisdom arises. There will be insight into the true nature of body and mind, and then the unnecessary suffering falls away. And Mingyur Rinpoche says, once we start our path of dharma, every practice is an awareness practice. Every moment is an awareness practice. Every activity is an awareness practice. So that's really what we're doing here. Just in any moment, however long you forget, it doesn't matter. The next moment that we're awake, we start right here. So it may seem mundane and not much, but the has the power to completely change how we live our lives. So thank you for listening so patiently. We just like to sit quietly for a minute after the talk. So <clears throat> if you have energy in a half an hour, we'll have a short sitting together. It probably won't even be a half hour sitting. If you have energy, you're really tired and you need to, to rest, rest. If you feel that walking in the cool night air will refresh your awareness, then do that. Really, the whole thing is what will refresh and help you come back into balanced awareness. That's what the practice is. So thank you. <coughs>